0: be right with Brian Scott Rippey. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall and then writing down every thought you have.
1: What's up? I'm Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rights podcast powered by Twisted Tea. This is our Sunday SEC football conversation with Weldon Rodenberg. We talked a good bit about old Mrs. 33 to 7 win over Vanderbilt, the dominating defensive line. Jackson Darts, health status, running the football, getting some tight ends and receivers back, the Dayton Wade experience, and a whole lot more. We also took a look around the SEC, Ole Miss' outlook for the final four games of its season as it once again sits at 7-1, and one. what to look forward to. And of course, at the end, the fastest growing segment on American soil, Soccer Corner. So buckle up. Thank you. Enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, I want to take one quick break to remind you. This podcast is brought to you by C Spire. Time to upgrade your home internet to the best service in the market with C Spire Home Fiber. The past few years have proven how important it is to have reliable home internet connection for you and your family. That's why C Spire Home provides the most reliable internet service with 99.99% uptime. C Spire also prides themselves with best customer service in the home internet market. Their customer service is award-winning, local, based out of the Southeast with industry low call wait time. C-SPIRE provides 1 gigabit and 300 megabit internet packages to homes across Mississippi, Birmingham, and southern Alabama regions. C-SPIRE is also proud to announce the release of their brand new 2 gigabit and 8 gigabit home internet plan. Save yourself the hassle by not waiting for your internet connection to drop with the other guys. Call or go online to cspire.com slash home today and use promo code RIPPEE. and you'll get one month of free service. So you get a free month of internet service and the best internet service in the market just for listening to this podcast. How about that? Check it out. C Spire, customer inspired. This podcast is also brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Major Carnival, an advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. If you're a Skybox member, you went 11 and four on NFL picks over the weekend, plus 8.5 units. Some of you out there who didn't use Skybox, probably hurting in the wallet, probably hurting in the old Venmo account, having to pay the man. You should sign up to Skybox Sports Picks today. Go online, find a Picks package within your price range. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. You can try NFL. You can try college. You can try all the sports. I recommend going with the year-long all access pass because you will make every year a profitable one with skybox you don't want to lose money this football season maybe we're a month and a half into this maybe you're already in a little bit of a hole use skybox to help you pull out of it they are the professionals they're Picks are based on data and modeling, not leans five minutes before kickoff. They'll send you picks in a nice color-coded spreadsheet, and boom, you're more equipped to profit than you were before signing up for Skybox. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Use the promo code Rippy R-I-P-P-E-E, and that'll get you 20% off any purchase. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. All right, here is Weldon Rodenberg. All right, we now welcome on former Ole Miss Recruiting Specialist, Rippy Wright's football correspondent, Weldon Rodenberg. Ole Miss beats... Vanderbilt thirty three to seven in a very Ole Miss Vanderbilt like game. Ole Miss jumps out on them early. The game kind of becomes a slog in the middle quarters. Just kind of a very workman like effort, I guess I would call it uh, for Ole Miss. You know, I don't think they played particularly well. But as Lane has pointed out a couple of times throughout the year, it's like you know they're nineteen and two or something in the last twenty one at home, and you know they're they're not feeling great after beating a team by twenty six points to get a conference win.
0: No, they didn't play great at all, especially in the second half. But they came out with really good energy. There was clearly a pretty big crowd there, and they kind of stuck it to them in the first two quarters, which kind of put both sides in the same boat. And you kind of saw how Vanderbilt handled like the last, you know, quarter of the game. We're like, all right, we're, we're good here now. It's 26 0. Uh, we're just going to kind of ease into the end of this thing and, and move forward with both of our seasons, which is what it felt like for two quarters. So nothing impressive, but. Uh, I thought his quote about the standards and like, hey, we beat an SEC team by 26 that last year actually, you know, put up some fight against us and other teams. Uh, I'm fine with that being a disappointing effort, um, or at least other people think it's a disappointing effort. So it is what it is. It's, it was an old Miss Vanderbilt game.
1: We talk about this whole – Increased trend in college football of it being such like a week-to-week sport. You know, there's so many new guys on a roster each year. For games like this, I imagine it's increasingly hard to get guys up and excited for it. Ole Miss had some kind of like bring your own energy type stuff going, whether it was dunking in the basketball goal and stuff like that. I thought the crowd was actually pretty good. We can get to that in a second, but I just imagine it's probably in this day and age of college football very difficult to get super motivated and get up for a game like that? Because one, they came out and took care of business early, even though the game didn't go great in the middle quarters, but th- it was never in doubt. They knew they were never going to lose that game. Knowing what you have coming the next couple of weeks with Texas A&M coming to town and then Georgia to kind of define the 2023 season. I just imagine this is a game where it's impossible to feel very geeked up going into it.
0: It has to be impossible. And I mean, I've been on the sidelines though. We weren't really all that good the years I were there, but even in games, like this, you just know it's really hard, especially at home, oddly enough, Um, that it, it can be even more difficult to get up for it. And Lane mentioned on Monday, we're talking about like the UNC and Virginia game and how, you know, n- you never know what can happen. And we have to do the best we can to bring as much energy ourselves as possible. Uh, he was begging the crowd to come in. And I understand it completely like we need some energy around us as well. And I thought, despite not really converting in the red zone early in that game, that they really did come out with a lot of energy, especially uh, on defense. And if you pack defense and you're able to run the ball efficiently, these kinds of games go how they should go, and it absolutely did that for the first two quarters. I think they really shut down any scenario where this was going to be a weird game in any way, shape, or form. They, They did exactly what they needed to do, and I know it didn't look pretty For two quarters. And I, you know, my brother went to Vanderbilt. He, I told you earlier, he was in town this weekend. We were just like, I'm going to have to watch this game. I'm going to talk about it tomorrow, but I could do literally anything else but watch the second half of this game and pretty much have a good idea of what happened. Uh, It was nothing to uh, write home about.
1: I went home at halftime. I was at the game. I sat with my parents and I went home at halftime for one, just now with the post game show, some of it being on camera to kind of get ready for some of that. But like, I was kind of like you, I was like, I actually really don't want to watch the second half. There are actually some other good games going on. I kind of flipped around a little bit, had the laptop going too. But to say I was like, you know, I would say glued into the second half, like I normally am for most of these old Miss games. So we can write, uh, talk about it. And even the early season ones, when it's like a slog in the second half, I'm still trying to watch pretty closely to try to, you know, pick up on something, see who's playing, who's not playing. I just didn't feel like the second half had a ton to offer in this game. And one thing I noticed last week when I was kind of just looking at the matchup and, Doing, you know, kind of normal week to week stuff in anticipation of the game. I kind of forgot Vanderbilt was five and seven last year and like a road loss at Missouri away from going six and six. I, you know, it, it felt worse because they were so they were pretty poor for like the first nine weeks of the season, but then routed off back to back wins against Florida and Kentucky. But I just kind of forgotten they were actually five and seven and somewhat flirting with a bowl game at one point last year. Uh, this year not not the case. Um, I, I'll get to the old Miss takeaways in a second, but man, they have a talent issue. Uh, Chris Lee, guy who works for the Vandy Rival site. Always enjoy his take on like the big picture state of Vanderbilt football. And uh, he mentioned, you know, that they were behind in getting their NIL and collective going. And I was like, man, I'm actually surprised they have one uh, with their attitude towards football <laughs> lately. You know, he mentioned they're behind. That that seemed like also stating the sky was blue. I guess the overall point in that is they have a real, real talent deficiency issue that's, you know, even for Vanderbilt standards is worse than it's been at other times.
0: I remember talking before the game last year and talking about how like they had a few edge guys that were like actually pretty intriguing. They had that kid from London who was a pretty good player um, playing as kind of like a standup linebacker, you know, the running back, Ray Davis, who's now at Kentucky was an interesting player, uh, Shepard, who's still there, the kid from Mandeville, Louisiana, 14, uh, he was a pretty good player. And, like, they, they were pretty competent last year. They actually had some guys that maybe a few other SEC teams would actually like to have on their roster. And just for whatever reason, I'm sure the main reason is just because they're Vanderbilt, this year they just do not have that at all. Um, and it was actually interesting listening to my brother talk about it. I mean, he's not the biggest Vanderbilt football fan in the world, and he'll tell you that most people that go there – you know, they, they watch it from the periphery, but not exactly all in. Uh, but he's like, look, we don't have any dudes like we we will hear about guys in recruiting and recruiting be like, oh, he's interesting. He didn't even know who the quarterback was. Um, and of course, we heard that Lane Kiffin also didn't. And we'll talk about that in a second. But uh, yeah, it's really tough over there. It's an incredibly thankless and difficult job. And it's not impossible for them to be competitive here and there. Uh, but they're so far behind that if they don't have one of those, year, those years where they can put it all together, it's going to look like this, which is not very impressive.
1: One of my least favorite parts about, like, the Ole Miss Vanderbilt game every year – I say every year. Oh, it's been a little bit of a rivalry at some points in the last decade and a half. But, yeah. like, in the last you know, post, I would say James Franklin uh, era. Uh, I know – I think – what did he, they get Matt Luke once or twice. I can't remember. But point being, when they have really bad teams, I just look over at that sideline – you have an SEC staff over there, a lot of people that put a lot of time and hard work into it. I just imagine that has to be very demoralizing. Hell, being a player, like being an offensive lineman on that team and just getting your collective shit rocked for three hours on most Saturdays, it, it's commendable that they continue to go out there and do that. But, man, I was just sitting there thinking, and this is probably one of the thousand reasons i would ever played football uh, at any sort of <laughs> any sort of notable level. But that just has to be demoralizing every single week to just be so outmatched every time you step on the field.
0: I understand that. I don't know if those kids have that mindset necessarily because, yeah. um, I mean, they play hard. They played hard last night for the entire game. Uh, they, I like Clark Lee. I like what he's done there. I kind of like what he represents. I know he, he's a big coach speak guy, but I, I kind of respect him. And I've talked about him and how he handled some stuff of of people that I knew about uh, a former coach of mine that was a Vanderbilt SEC legend and Clark Lee. I'm, I'm a huge fan of his. And, yeah, it's got to be really, really difficult. But it's still an SEC football team. It's still an SEC job. I know it doesn't feel like it. I know they don't feel like it. I know it's just it is what it is. Um, But some of these guys, they're all playing for different things. They're playing, you know, of course, for their team to win football games. They're coaching to win football games. They're playing for the opportunity to potentially play in the NFL. They're playing for the opportunity to maybe transfer somewhere else. You know, there's different motivations for teams like that um and I mean they're trying to build something and it's difficult to do I mean we think of the same thing when we think about Duke and guess what when you get the right quarterback in and you put uh, a good scheme together and you recruit well and you portal as well as you can considering where you are you can be a really good football team um I don't know if Vanderbilt can do that consistently uh, but it's not impossible so I I know you want to look at them as little brothers of the poor uh which is your rights because they're not very good and they're really never very good, but it's a little bit more than just like, you know, oh, we're just getting our ass kicked every week. Like this sucks to be here. Like there could be a lot worse situations for those kids. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned the quarterback piece of it. Actually going into the
1: year, I can't remember if it was the week zero game. It had to have been, I guess, watching Vanderbilt uh, play Hawaii. I'd forgotten Ken Seals existed. He like starts for them as a true freshman in the, well like 20 and then maybe played the 21 season two, and then Mike Wright comes in and he's just like not the guy anymore and then he like took his first snap uh this year and like in first time in like 600 days or whatever that's that's an interesting one you don't see a whole lot because I imagine you're a guy that's a starter and then you lose the job to someone else like I would imagine he would leave but then it was actually like Mike Wright who left and then all of a sudden it's like Ken Seals team again that's that's a very unique situation you don't see happen a ton
0: anymore. No, not at all. And then they pulled him in this game for the uh, the freshman kid, and it looked like they were basically just experimenting for, for three and a half or two and a half quarters with this, this new kid uh, who clearly didn't have the full playbook, was just an athlete. They were trying to see what they got there, and I honestly respect that. I'm all in on that. Uh, the Raiders last week went to play the Bears and decided to start Josh Hoyer uh, or Brian Hoyer, I'm sorry, instead of the rookie O'Connell, and it's like Josh McDaniels. What on earth are you gaining from this situation? Like, you're what are you seeing? I mean, you're right now. You're like three and three or three and four. You're not totally out of it, but you're really not in it in that division either. See what you got with the young kid. Uh, there's no reason not to. And I, I actually like the way Clark Lee handled the end of the game. I know it basically meant they were not going to win the game. They were probably not going to be successful with that kid, but it was he was kind of a difference maker. Ole Miss defensively was pretty confused on how to handle him and like what he could bring to the table um, because, as we heard from Lane and Pete, uh, they did not know this kid existed <laughs> and were not prepared for him at all, which I, honest to God, don't necessarily blame them for. Um, so I, I get it. it. It's a weird deal. But when they have a quarterback, things can happen, and the kid was at least interesting.
1: Yeah, it really was. He was interesting. He was strong as hell, uh, and that was something Big that Trey yeah. Washington said. He had a couple of times where he kind of pushed the power and pushed that kind of the initial collision at the line of scrimmage. I was like, damn, who is this? But Lane's answer was pretty funny after the game. I forget which who asked him about it or how the question was worded, but he was basically like, you know, I'm going to tell you something a lot of guys wouldn't tell you. Because I didn't know who he was. I was like, did they yeah. sign a relative of Cam Newton <laughs> or something like that that made me laugh? And, you know, Lane's honesty is refreshing at times, too. But it was – he was like, that's pretty bad on me. But it was kind of funny in that kind of scenario in the game being a slog. They just bring in this giant, very strong running quarterback who can who can do a little bit. And Lane's sitting over there going, who is that? Like, how, how did he get on the team? Where did he get a jersey?
0: Uh, you could see the defensively every time he was in the game. They were in these different formations. They were basically just running – I mean, zone and, uh, I mean, RPOs, and it was just a completely different offense from what they were running originally. And the defense was like, shit, like, we got to get prepared for this. People were confused on the goal line when they scored the touchdown. They're like, okay, who's got quarterback? Who's got running back? I mean, we're basically running triple option out here. And, I mean, for literally even two quarters, they were really confused on what to do with this kid. And I think it shows clearly because they had no idea that he played football for Vanderbilt.
1: It's hard to analyze a win like this, as we mentioned, because the game was out of doubt very quickly, and then Ole Miss just kind of got through it after that, for the lack of a better phrase. But one of the things that stuck out to me, and I know it's Vanderbilt, and I know they struggle up front on the offensive line, but the Ole Miss defensive line – is uh they've had a, i think at least at, le- at least 3 sacks in every single game they played this year they had 5 last night they're either fourth or fifth in all of college football in sack total which is Lane even talked about in his answer when he got asked about it, it can be misleading sometimes but in this game they were very disruptive and got actual you know significantly negative yardage sacks and again it's against a bad offensive line it's hard to gauge it but week after week this de- defensive line seems to be a little bit of a uh of of kind of a microcosm of this defense as a whole, where they brought in a bunch of new pieces. They realized, okay, we have some depth here. Now they have a lot of different versatile guys coming into their own and they're playing really, really good football up front. And I thought that was really the main takeaway I had from last night is that they dominated a game against a bad opponent. And there's been some decent old missed defenses through the years that weren't able to do that.
0: Um, they're incredibly deep on the defensive line. Uh, deep with players, we talk about like depth is is relative. You have to have depth of players who you're comfortable actually playing. And they absolutely have at least seven or eight guys that are fully comfortable playing all four spots, whether it's outside backer, defensive tackle, defensive end, uh, multiple, multiple guys that they're comfortable putting out there. And I think the biggest difference between this defensive line and ones that they've had in the past is their ability to rush the passer from the defensive tackle position. Uh, Whether it's putting Ivy down there or J.J. or Harris, they just really are able to push the pocket really, really far back, kind of like those old New York Giants defenses where you had like Justin Tuck and those guys would flip inside and just completely cave in the pocket. Uh, They've done that consistently. They're pretty good in their rush lanes. And then if their guys on the outside just get home, I mean, they're right there for the taking and they've been able to do that from different formations. They've been able to do it from different looks. Um, Even just rushing three or four, they've gotten pressure and it's been really, really impressive. And I mean, they had what six sacks against Vanderbilt. Uh, That's really impressive. I don't, I don't care who you're playing to have that many from like four different guys contributing is really, really good and a good sign. I mean, we've seen it this year. They've, had a really good havoc rate. They've had a great sack rate. They've taken the ball away, and they did it again in this game um, at an incredibly high level. Uh, they've just been really good. Nothing you can say about it more than that.
1: Yeah, and it's a lot of different types of guys, right? It's it, you know they've moved Uku around a little bit. Um, you know Cedric Johnson seems to be a little bit more of kind of like the pure pass rusher, but even Jared Ivy could get got off got after the quarterback off the edge, and it seems like a lot of different guys. Uh, that do a bunch of different things, whether it's even on the interior with Pegues to Josh Harris to Xavier Harris there. And it's something you could sense early in the season. I mean, it's something we talked about after the first the first game heading uh, against Mercer heading into the two lane games. like I'm very interested to see if like this D-line rotation is real. And it's 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 helped that they've remained healthy up front and really on the defensive side of the football as a whole for the most part. But the the idea that they had more depth and they were going to be better up there and guys weren't going to have to play any snaps has certainly held true because now you're eight games into the season. You're not really talking about any sort of major rash of injuries. And I think over these last couple games, particularly over the next eight quarters against um, Texas A&M and against Georgia – I think you're going to see it make a difference, whereas times last year the defense got really fatigued, uh, particularly toward the end of the year in the second half of games. I think you're going to see that make a big difference this time of go around because these guys just don't have the tread and the miles on them that they did you know, a year ago because they're playing the same five guys, 65, 70 snaps, and they're just not having to do that this year. And I think that's going to play a huge role for them in the final month of the season.
0: It's the reason why they've been so good in the fourth quarters is that they're legitimately fresh in the front seven. They've got multiple guys who can play at linebacker. they got multiple guys to play on the front. Uh, it's really, I mean, they've caved down on guys late in games and they did again in this game. I mean, it doesn't even matter if the offense could do nothing in the second half. They were really controlling the tempo and something we talked about earlier in the year where I was concerned is they were never really dictating uh, the point of attack on defense early on, they absolutely have done that in the last three or four weeks. They are absolutely dictating terms uh, on that side of the ball. And that just adds to everything. It makes the quarterback rush, which eventually gets you to have to cover less and eventually maybe make a mistake and pick them off. And they had, I mean, legitimately five potential interceptions last night. uh, And they only ended up getting two of them, but it it just, it helps everything. uh, And it's really, really impressive the way they've been able to restructure this roster. Uh, defensively this season,
1: yeah, but and they've done it. These guys, they've it done it quickly, fun. and I know, I know we talked about this before, but I mean, Pete Golding's done a hell of a job. I, Lane keeps saying outside the LSU game and reminding everyone that LSU does that to everybody, but it's it's the fact that they've been able to find some depth and some versatility, particularly on the defensive line and on the back end of the defense and the secondary. But they've also been pretty good schematically. Pretty much every game they've gone into this year sends the LSU game. But, again, take that with a grain of salt because LSU can t- continues to do that to pretty much every opponent it plays and kind of has to to stay in games because their own defensive issues. But it's crazy how, like, a new – I don't even know if it's different expectations, but it's just a change of scenery can, can – affect how you look at a guy because I mean if you read those Alabama message boards they you would have thought that that guy was the dumbest person to ever walk inside Bryant Denny Stadium and coach a football game on defense they were so glad to have him gone there I mean it's all Ole Miss Alabama week a lot of Pete Golding jokes and Ole Miss gets him and he's recruiting very well he reshaped the roster pretty quickly and has done a pretty damn good job and it's just funny how a different job can affect the way you look at a guy a lot of it
0: has to do with expectations as well uh, you've seen Alabama defenses from the same time Saban got there to even now just be elite. And for Pete Golding, while he was there, they were always really, really good to elite. But when they would have a game where they would lose, which is just you know something doesn't happen very often in Alabama, they would always look at one side of the ball because of what was going on, on the other side, which was not necessarily always true um, or the case. You know, it was just always, you know, a little bit of everything. Uh, he's really good at his job. There's a reason why he was on that staff for five or six years. There's a reason why he's really, really, really been successful this first year at Ole Miss is because he knows what he's doing. Uh, and he does it from a kind of a holistic view when it comes to recruiting every single position, understanding you know where people need to be. I think that's the biggest thing that's impressed me this year with Ole Miss is just the lack of breakdowns. You know, maybe a player misses an assignment, but it's not just a completely blown deal. They had, like, maybe one or two earlier in the year, and you just have not been seeing that lately. And it's been really, really impressive uh, coming from him and having so many new guys to be able to instill kind of their scheme and the way that they play so quickly.
1: There was one a little bit of a note last night. Kevin got asked about – uh about ISHIM Young not being on the sidelines. Uh, not something I noticed, honestly, because of the amount of snaps he's played or lack of snaps he's played really over the last month since SEC plays uh, gotten started and heated up. I just haven't really thought about Aisheem Young a whole hell of a lot, but he was not on the sideline. Kiffin said it was a disciplinary issue. I guess that in some ways that just speaks to the depth because they haven't really missed a beat. That's a guy that helped him a lot last year. And I, honest to God, had not noticed he wasn't out there. Um, he played like eight snaps against... Auburn maybe like six against Arkansas and then like nine or 10 against OSU. And it's just not a guy I've noticed in the mix at all throughout, you know, any game of, of consequence this season. And I don't know, that just was kind of crazy to me. I was like, Oh, I, that's right. Ashim Young still exists. and was like supposed to be a contributor. And I guess he's no longer a contributor, at least not for the foreseeable no,
0: future. I guess not. Hey, he's just been completely bashed up um now know whether that's more of a disciplinary thing than an actual play on the field thing I couldn't tell you but he's just not really been a factor in this defense they've been able to out recruit him and over recruit him uh which is huge that's important you want to, you know it sucks for him but it's good for the defense I think they performed perfectly fine without him it's a it's a
1: Saunders Anthony some of those guys that they found
0: here and there yeah. tra- Washington, uh, they kind of mix and match just a little bit there. And I mean, you've you've got your guys in the back end.
1: Yeah, and it's it's just it's kind of a prime example, I guess, of 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 what we're talking about in terms of the depth they've been able to form. So I don't know it's up there, but uh, I don't know if I would expect him to play at all next week against Texas A&M. but just kind of going off the T leads that Kiffin said, I don't really know anything there, but that was an interesting piece of it as well. The crowd, we talked about kind of the old miss having to bring its own energy for a game like this. Um, I didn't notice the basketball goal until Chase brought it up after the show and I had to go back and look. Um, I, whatever works,
0: I guess. Uh I don't copy <laughs> you couldn't miss it. So I I mean they'd never done that before. I don't I guess it was just kind of a bring your own energy, kind of get guys riled up, some sort of incentive for good for good play. I mean, it it's a nothing burger. But the- it
1: was- it's just But it's like another element of kind of the thought they put in to try to create good environments, whether it's from the player aspect or the crowd. And that kind of just led me into the crowd portion of it. It was a pretty solid crowd. The only sections that were empty to start the game were the Vanderbilt section kind of toward the – like end zone on the South end zone club where the way section always sits. Vanderbilt, of course, didn't bring anybody, not really a shocker there. And a little bit of sparsely populated area kind of above where the band sits. But the rest of it was a pretty full stadium from the vantage point I had, at least from where I was sitting. And I was – I don't want to say shocked by it, but I was mildly surprised. Uh, Part of it was just the amount of times I was offered tickets this week. It seemed like people were just trying to to just give them away. Not a lot of people were going to attend the game, but it turned out to be a pretty damn good crowd. They do a great job with the pregame stuff and like the light show and all that. And they've just made it, they've done such a good job of it being an event. And after two years of Kiffin kind of prodding the crowd and, you know, begging them to stay and begging them to show up for games like that, I felt like, as off-putting as it was sometimes and as awkward as it was when he did it, like it seems like he kind of has proved the point and people have listened because if that amount of people – I don't know what the announced attendance was, but if you have an environment like that against a terrible Vanderbilt team at a 6.30 game before you have you know, an 11 a.m. game the next week and then arguably the most important game left the week after that, I was super impressed by the turnout and it was not what I expected.
0: No, I mean, it's Vanderbilt. And I, I think it being at 6.30 helps – uh, it's a little bit easier. It's a little bit more fun. And I think his whole deal about asking people to come, it, it's kind of just a recruiting deal where once you come the first time and you see what it's like and you see the team play, you see teams win. And, you know, if you're someone who doesn't go to every single home game, the thing you're thinking when you leave is I, I want to go back. And once you start getting people in that cycle and having that at a part of their, you know, discretionary income and discretionary time. It's like, you know, that's actually really, really fun. It's actually not that hard to do. Uh, The games are really enjoyable. And, of course, we have ESPN and everything else working against that with how shitty the actual, you know, game time situation stuff is. Uh, But, I mean, people have listened. That crowd from the TV angle I was watching looked really, really good early. And, yes, People left late. It was basically a four score game at, at a halftime. Like that's just going to happen. People complaining about that are just people complaining to complain. That just is what it is. It happens every stadium across the country on every single night, whether you're playing someone good or bad, people leave. Uh, but to show up like that against Vanderbilt uh, was really impressive. And I will not expect anything less against AM, even though it's at 11 a.m. I think it'll be completely full. And AM brings a lot of people too.
1: Yeah, I think that game will be a sellout or close to it. I think that will be a pretty good environment. I know it's 11 a.m., but really the other piece of it, too. That's kind of the last home game. I know you have one more, but it's it's ULM the week before Thanksgiving. That's kind of it. So, like, next weekend, as crazy as it is to say, it's kind of like your last real, real game inside Vaught-Hemingway for
0: the year. 100%. I know it's not technically senior night, but they probably sh- – they should do – they should switch it and have it uh... – as as the a game is Senior Day, Senior Night, or whatever, so that people can actually appreciate some of these guys instead of the ULM game, which will be fifty percent max full. Unless they beat Georgia, then maybe there'll be you know seventy thousand people packed in that stadium. Who knows?
1: Yeah, exactly. Very efficient Jackson Dart performance. Didn't think it was his best. Missed Hudson Wolf on a touchdown. Had a couple of errant throws. But he's nineteen to twenty eight for two hundred forty yards, touchdown and a pick. Really bad pick there. I don't know if he didn't see the guy that was kind of coming toward right where I was sitting. But a tough one there. One of the, I guess, the only takeaway I had from this one was, it's clear that he's ailing in some way. Um, he's definitely not a hundred percent. We were talking about it before he had the great uh, second half against Auburn, where it just looked off. Uh, Neil asked him directly after the game about his health status, and he said uh, some variation of what he always says. But he says, "I'll be good," but I mean, that's not saying I am good or I am healthy. Like, "I'll be good" implies there's something there. And the only thing I was a little bit surprised about, you texted me, it was like, I think I'd flipped it off at this point. You said Sanders time. I maybe was a little bit surprised that Sanders didn't get more run and you just kind of get dart off the field and kind of make sure nothing happens there and he doesn't get dinged up. Not even really a criticism or second guessing at all. That was just mildly surprising to me. I figured they might give dart a series or two in the second half. Maybe you go down the field and score, which they didn't do. And then just turn it over to Sanders. But I thought Sanders might play more in this game because what do you have to lose? It's not like you're saving anything for him. You know what I mean? I just figured he might get a little more run in this game.
0: I mean, I tend to agree. I think just the way the game played out, it being ended up being like 26 to 7 in the third quarter. You couldn't necessarily start throwing in backups then, though, of course, it was never out of doubt. But it's like if we really want to win this game like 29 to 21, like I don't think that's necessary. Uh, But going back to Dart, I texted you during the Auburn game, especially during the first half, and I know he played fantastic in the second. But even that being the case, I was like, this guy looks really hurt. Uh, He looks incredibly slow. His, His feet in the pocket look slow. He's not throwing with a good base. He's throwing on his back foot. He's not as willing to run as he's been earlier in the season. And I saw when Neil asked, I was, I was happy somebody did. Of course, you get nothing out of it, but that is what it is. Um, it, it's a concern going into these next two weeks because you're about to play two hella athletic defensive fronts where you're going to have to make plays with your feet, make plays in and outside of the pocket, and he just doesn't look right. Uh, and when he doesn't look right, he doesn't play very well. And that's something that we've seen with his time here. Is once he gets a knock, and it's not because he's not tough, it's just – it changes the way that he's able to play and his effectiveness, and it's definitely something that was concerning to watch during the Vanderbilt game um, and then going into this next game against AM, playing against that defensive line. I don't know what to think of it yet. I don't know what the, how they're going to handle it. Uh, they'll have a completely different game plan for A&M. This was as vanilla as vanilla gets. I mean, they were running the same plays on like five straight drives. I mean, th- there was nothing about this that was – Showing anything. And, and Lane has shown to be an incredibly good game planner, <clears throat> with the exception of Alabama, for whatever reason. Uh, against big teams and teams like AM, uh, teams where you're evenly matched or sometimes undermatched. Uh, so I'm not worried about it, but it's something to at least monitor going into these next two weeks. And then Sanders wise, and like I said earlier, they they couldn't really put him in for the second half because it wasn't totally out of hand. Um, but it clearly shows you, and know, we talked about this during the game, that Sanders is 100% the second-string quarterback, and Howard will not be playing until 2024, uh, or against ULM maybe when it really doesn't matter. But Sanders is, is the second-string quarterback for this team.
1: We'll get back to Weldon in just one second, but before we do, I want to take one quick break to remind you. This podcast is brought to you by Twisted T. Are you ready to elevate your college football game day experience? Check out Twisted T. your Go-to game day beverage for college football fans. Twisted tea is unlike any other hard beverage you've ever had before. It's made with real brewed tea and packs a flavorful punch with 5% alcohol and no carbonation, delivering the perfect balance of taste and refreshment that goes down smooth for every game day occasion. No need to settle for the usual. Twisted tea turns up on any occasion, especially when you're cheering on your favorite team. Whether you're tailgating in the stadium parking lot, watching at a bar, or hosting friends at home, Twisted tea is their day elevate your game day experience it perfectly complements your love for college football and your passion for creating unforgettable moments so let's toast to unforgettable game day experience twisted tea the drink that fuels and celebrates your love for college football keep it twisted podcast is also brought to you by lb's university avenue there in oxford go see greg if you're a rippy right subscriber that's dot you get a free newsletter for me and discounted meats right now it's three six ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks it's about a 40 dollar evaluation you're getting there for 20 dollars. just go in show greg proof of subscription tell him you know about the rippy rights newsletter he'll get you set up and then go find all of your own favorites it's the greatest butcher shop in the world incredible cuts of meat I love the filet burgers, all kinds of delicious sausages. The tri-tip is incredible. It's truly a gem of Oxford and a gem of the South. Check them out. LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Weldon. That's what my takeaway from the way it was handled last night. And it wasn't anything overly surprising. I figured that was the case. But, you know, if they're playing a game of consequence and Dart has to come out of the game, I think you know who's going in. It was interesting, though, but there was something that I kind of had that had raised my antenna entering the game just because he looked hurt at times last week. And then Arkansas, he got hurt on, like, the first or second play of the game, and it kind of made the offense bog down a little bit after that. So it was something I was looking at. and was the irony in all of it was – is that first touchdown is set up by the fact that he escapes the pocket and then throws an absolute dime on the run deep to Dayton Wake down the sideline. I was like, all right, maybe he does look healthy. And I don't know if it's one of those things where he gets hit in whatever area is ailing him, and then it starts slowing down. But it was kind of funny where I was like, okay, never mind. He does look fine. But I was like, never mind. A little bit of fool's gold there. Uh, it uh, definitely looked like he was not right for most of the game. Oh,
0: no, no. Yeah. Um... I mean, that was maybe one of his best throws outside of the pocket since he's been in Ole Miss. So it was awesome to see and show that he has it, and it's a great job on a scramble drill by Wade. But even when he's getting out of the pocket and making things happen, it's just so slow. I mean, he's not necessarily ever been the biggest quick twitch guy running the football. He's more of a big, you know, kind of long strider that kind of gains ground by just his stride. Um, but even now, he I mean, just like – Figuring out what to do when the th- when the play breaks down, it's just he's he's thinking slower, he's moving slower, um, and it's not like he's playing like shit. I mean that that's not the case at all. It's just something that has been incredibly noticeable over the last three games.
1: And. Dayton Wade, another hell of a game, a guy that seems to be, I mean, we talked about like the lack of like top end playmakers for the last two years and how they've welled that a bit with the addition of Trey Harris. We thought Zachari Franklin, he didn't really play in this game. That continues to be a mystery. But man, uh, where Ole Miss would be without both Jordan Watkins and Dayton Wade, I know we keep talking about it like a broken record. But it really is kind of unbelievable how those were two undervalued additions that in the two couple years they've been at Ole Miss have paid massive, massive dividends.
0: I've talked about how, like, you really don't want that guy being your second receiver, and I'm totally off that now. I mean, he's just really good. He's just a really good football player. He is a great route runner. He clearly knows what to do in every single play, which is the reason why he's playing as much as he is. Uh, He has incredible balance and body control for a receiver of his size it's rare to see a guy be able to track the ball like he does and make plays on it uh, away from his body it's really really impressive stuff for a guy that was a walk-on from western Kentucky uh, it's an incredible story he's been such an important part of this offense for two years and I do notice it's kind of interesting that in games like this they like really feature Dayton Wade yeah Uh, featured as much, you know, against LSU or against Alabama or AM or Auburn. Uh, but in games where they know they're gonna win, they're like, you know what, it's the Dayton Wade time. You know, this guy's coming up and we're gonna actually really feature him and point him out and get plays for him to get open. And I don't know if that's just like a credit to him and more of a or if it's more of a scheme thing or if it's just he's playing in this game. That's just where the read is. I don't know, but I have noticed in games like this, he, he's a dude and him and Trey Harris and Jordan Watkins going out there and catching punts and passes with a broken hand. Uh, That's maybe their toughest position on the entire field. uh, Those three guys, which is not something you always hear from the wide receiver position, but those guys have been
1: incredible. Giffen clearly loves the guy. He caught a date weight in particular. He likes both of them, obviously, but he called him a culture kid. And uh, I mean, I've heard from the beginning since he's gotten there, what kind of a character he is and what, how much everyone enjoys him in the locker room. And it was, just gratifying i guess to see him have success made a hell of a catch on that ball down the near gotcha. sideline in the second quarter, or what that was. I didn't think he was going to come down with that. And all of a sudden he just, it almost looked like he caught it with like his armpit. I was like, how in God's name did he actually come down with that and hold it? But you mentioned the balance and he's vers- more versatile than you think. You mentioned maybe that's why you're off. You don't want the guy being your number two. I thought Dart described it interesting last night where he was like, you know, he's a, he's an inside receiver with outside skill set as well. And like him being able to do that much was not something I anticipated when, you know, we got the first couple of sample sizes of what this guy actually was and who who the hell this walk-on was from what western Kentucky
0: no exactly and honestly if Dart had the arm strength that Corral had this guy be streaking down the field way more than he does in the offense because you saw multiple times last night and even against Auburn uh sometimes I mean this guy's just running free uh I know one of the plays where Dart got sacked against Auburn he completely whipped a DB and was like streaking completely wide open down the middle of the field and he couldn't see him because he got sacked but he's just got an incredible skill set he's just a really really good player um, who will have a shot to potentially make a roster in some way, shape, or form uh, in his next you know iteration of life? Whether that's in the NFL, CFL, or XFL, or wherever the hell LFL we have these days, uh, he's going to have a shot uh, because you know when you're a culture guy, a guy that can play special teams, a guy that can play multiple positions, you're going to have a chance. I'm uh, really, he's just really impressive, the kid.
1: What did you make of the whole let's try to get J.J. a touchdown at all costs? It seemed like Lane just kind of toying with them. It was was kind of funny. It was very dysfunctional. I didn't quite understand what was going on. Uh, Very big dude. Watching a big dude lumber forward toward the line of scrimmage at the goal line, I guess, is always kind of fun. But it was just (laughs) funny. Like, it didn't work out the first time. And they're like, damn it, we're
0: trying this again. The funniest part is that if he just like pitches the ball out to Bentley, he walks in for a touchdown. I mean, no one thinks anyone is getting the ball except for Piggies on those plays. Um, it's something to put on film, you know, wastes another team's time for 45 to minutes to an hour preparing for old miss. Um, it's quite silly when you have you know Judkins. That you can just hand the ball off to and get in there, uh, but I don't have, I have a problem with it. It's Vanderbilt, you know. Try something new, see if it works out. See if it's consistent. It's not. It doesn't work. <laughs> um, but it's funny. And JJ's a great kid who's an awesome team player. But I would like him much more lined up at tight end. Absolutely bulldozing four guys. That that works a little bit more for me personally.
1: Got Hudson Wolf back on the field healthy, which is good to see. He may have played the week before. I never noticed it, but I was just glad to see him out there.
0: The Dart misses him for a wide open <laughs> for just what would have been an awesome moment for a kid who's gone through so much, so freaking annoying. I mean, just completely overthrows him, uh, which was just kind of sad considering all that's going back. But he's out there and he's playing. He is an absolute part of this team when he's healthy. He's out there. He doesn't really not in line all that often. He's usually kind of that outside tight end, uh, lined up as a wide receiver, kind of that slot guy. Um, and he looks like he's moving really well. I mean, he's a freaking huge kid I mean he is a complete like you notice when he's on the field because you're like wait who the hell is this guy they're like oh wait that's our 6-6 backup tight end who was a you know number two tight end in the country who just has been just ailed with a, a bunch of terrible injuries but he's going to be a factor with this team moving forward He he's a real player and if Dart was accurate he would have had a really cool touchdown there both of them are massive. I keep watching
1: pre every week, and it's funny to me when they split him out, when they do a couple of the things where they try to get the ball to Trey Harris or Dayton Wade in space, like right out there on the perimeter and quick throws. If you're a corner and you have 6'6", 255-pound Caden Priest corn coming to block you kind of right at the point of attack... Um, I would just run toward the sideline and be like, I'm good, maybe make a business decision, but that has gotta be pretty shitty for a corner to just have a six six two hundred and fifty-five athletic tight end come down because you're not winning that. You can maybe try to go
0: around him, but if he, if he gets you, you're screwed. Yeah, you you're in real trouble. And for a guy that moves as well as both of them do, it's like they're not missing that block either. they're getting their hands on you and it's not gonna be fun. I mean. I think pre-scoring blocked a guy like literally into the oldest bench, which is lucky that it was on that side <laughs> on one of those plays or probably would have been a personal foul. But uh, he, he's just so important for this team. And Cole Kublik, who does a really good job, like pointed out multiple times the way that he affects the run games from like the nub position and everything. Um, he He's just a really good football player. He is definitely with a professional future as
1: well. I didn't really have very many other notes from this game. It kind of was what it was. I did throw a nice specialist take at you, uh, Fraser Mazine. Um, re- he's good for a shank every now and again. It usually comes at a uh, a, a suboptimal time, if you want to call it that. He like reminds me of my golf game sometimes where I can have it going pretty good. And then that one shank around that turns into a hole into a seven. It's like he can't really score with that. It's like, I don't know what's going on here. My theory was uh, Charlie Pollock seems to be a a bit of a thicker boy. Maybe his foot is wider, less likely for a shank. Uh, I don't know if that's actually backed up by science, but uh, just throwing that out there to see what sticks as far as uh, fixing Ole Miss's punting shank issues. Maybe get the, the, the fatter guy out there. I,
0: i'm totally with you and I, I that backs up with all the science that i know for sure bigger guys kick goes farther um and i don't even know that's probably not true at all <laughs> I don't think uh, it's either, but
1: <laughs> watching him hold is very funny because it's usually yeah. like a smaller punter guy you're like damn this guy's this guy's got some uh got some size to him holding it out there doesn't throw it very well as we learned
0: though no we did learn that uh, does not think on his feet very quickly um but actually like going back to the punting and we'll, we'll talk about this for less than 30 seconds. Once you start like shanking a punt one out of every five punts, I'm kind of done with you. And <laughs> he, he shanks at least one out of every four to five punts. It's, he's honestly lucky that we don't punt very often. Uh, so he doesn't have the ability to shank one, but it's, he's just not a very good punter, which is pretty rare for an Aussie kid um, to come in and just be like actually a liability.
1: Yeah, it really is rare. I hope that doesn't pop up for them in a, in a very crucial time. You mentioned they don't punt a lot, but I probably want to get that shored up. Let's take a look around the SEC. I guess we'll start with kind of where it affects Ole Miss most. We can get to the a South Carolina game in a second, but just I guess before we get to that, maybe the outlook going forward. Ole Miss has a huge game next weekend. It's Texas A&M. It's a very talented team. I think Ole Miss, I'm not very good at the whole line guessing thing, but Chase asked me what I thought the line would be. I think I said either four or four and a half on the post game show. That's kind of exactly where it opened at. That feels pretty fair. And to me, it's one of those is, you know, they got a very good defensive front. We talked about Dart's lack of mobility and, and you know, him not moving around as well as he did, you know, at the beginning and the middle portion of the season. They got some dudes up on that defensive line. They do have the defense to keep them in this game, particularly if Ole Miss doesn't play well. It's another golden opportunity to kind of increase your your standing and the way people talk about you as in the final weeks of the season when the spotlight gets bigger. It's a big opportunity. It's an eleven AM game, but I kind of view this similarly, like not in the exact same light as Auburn. But if Ole Miss plays well, they're going to win the game. And if they don't, AM is absolutely capable of beating them. And that that's kind of the way I viewed this one going in. Not exactly earth-shattering analysis, but whatever. <laughs>
0: No, uh, th- this is a tough matchup um, for Ole Miss, and it's such an intriguing and weird matchup because just depth by depth, talent by talent, roster by roster, everything, you know, being equal. A- A&M has a shit ton of advantages over Ole Miss, um, but it just never seems to matter. It is the most bizarre thing, and we'll talk about it, and everyone talked talk about it going into the week. You know, the, the front seven for a for and and the receivers for a and the running backs, the O-line, all the above um, are just they're all incredibly talented. And you watch this team play and you're like, this team is really not very good at all. Um, but that really won't matter on Saturday. It, they they have enough talent to scare you, which is Auburn is completely different. Where like that was all an Ole Miss to play well. They play well. They did what they need to do. Uh, they were going to go beat Auburn, which is exactly in at the end what happened. Uh, against A and M, you're going to have to make plays to beat them. You're going to have to put them down. And being at home is a huge advantage. Ole Miss has played incredibly well at home under Kiffin. A and M has played absolutely horribly on the road in the SEC these last three or four years. I don't know if they have an SEC road win in the last thing is like two years or three years. It, it's something really crazy um so I mean I like where they stand I like certain matchups for Ole Miss the front seven for a m as we'll repeat very good the back end not as good as they have been in the past um I think that Max Johnson is capable of making big throws but is one of the worst pocket awareness quarterbacks ever I think you're gonna be able to get to him um and when you rattle him it kind of nullifies the talent that they have at receiver in the running back position so it's an interesting matchup. It leads you, if you win this game, to have an incredible opportunity for an awesome season. You get a free shot at Georgia, and you will win those next two games after that. Um, I don't care how down you are after you, if you lose to Georgia, like you just simply are not losing to ULM in Mississippi State, um, barring absolute disaster. So, getting this one under the belt and having the opportunity to stay in the conversation, watch other teams around the country lose. While you win is basically the name of the game right now. Um, and it's just that all you can control is is winning the next game. And then whatever happens after that kind of happens. It's so it's a weird setup with the way the tiebreakers and the playoff and yada yada yada. At the end of the day, you just have to beat AM.
1: Yes, that's really kind of the gateway between a special season and a really good season we talked about it on the post game show a little bit last night like if they didn't beat a with a nine and three season would it be fair to call that a disappointment neil said it would be absolutely unfair it's hard to move the goalposts, and then we just kind of talked about how like yeah that's definitely true because we were all talking about seven can they get to eight at the beginning of the year but given the way the seasons played out it would be disappointing if it didn't happen without it being a disappointment if they didn't get to that 10 win threshold now and one of the things that's going to be interesting in this matchup, we can get into it a little bit later on in the week, and I'm sure we'll talk about it plenty throughout various platforms on MPW. But the AM thing is interesting to me because you talk about AM's defensive line and them having plenty of talent. It's going to be a big one for the Ole Miss defensive line, too, because I think maybe the most surprising thing about AM is their inability to run the football. I think in terms of yards per game and yards per touch, they're either the third or fourth worst rushing offense in the conference. And when you have a backup quarterback, who is capable but holds onto the football too long. It makes it a whole lot tougher when you can't run the football and you end up in second and third and longs and you're off schedule. So, if Ole Miss can nullify that part of A&M's running game, which a lot most of the good defenses that A&M has faced this year have done for the most part, then you're going to have a great shot to win the game. So it, it it's it's a it's an AM defensive line thing, but it's an old Miss defensive front thing to me too. To where if they can really nullify them running the football at the line of scrimmage, I don't know if Max Johnson is good enough to go on the road and win a game
0: like that. Uh, I'm not sure that he is either. I, I just really he he's capable. He's a capable quarterback, but he's not a game changing quarterback. He's not a guy you can rely on to do it by himself um and they yeah he like said they have not been able to run the ball they throw the balls to the back a lot so wrapping up and tackling is going to be really important because the three guys that they have are all incredibly talented players um and it's really limiting explosive plays with this team if you, they can't have an explosive play with the receivers that they have uh they're basically done because they they're so sluggish on offense that it's all about, like, momentum with them, oddly enough. And if you can take that away consistently and kind of win the field position battle, take advantages of turnovers that they give them to you, uh, you're going to win this game. I I think the line is incredibly fair. I think it's going to be a four-quarter game because, honestly, that's what Ole Miss has done against teams of equal, you know, lesser, greater. I don't know where A&M is against this team. They're so weird, like I said, to even discuss – um, but I think Ole Miss will win this football game. I think Lane has Jimbo's number. I think it's going to be an awesome atmosphere. I think the stakes are as high as they've been for an Ole Miss football game in a long time. Uh, even LSU, I know we talk about every week is so important, but this one really feels different to keep the momentum going forward. Because nine and three, you're, you're not getting uh, to an access bowl at nine and three. Uh, almost certainly not with the way that things are going on around the country. Uh, and then look, you have the ability to kind of knock out Jimbo, and maybe that's a good or bad thing considering how you think about it. Uh, but it, it'll be an interesting week, and I think it will also be another week to monitor Lane acting like an adult and not looking this game, you know, as you know, personally as he's taken matchups in the past and staying offline, you know, to an extent, because I, I don't think it's going to happen fully. Uh, for Jimbo, he'll get a jab in here or there. Uh, But just not making this more than anything that it is, which I think even though he clearly does not like Jimbo, he has not really done that in the past until after the game.
1: I had this earlier, and I couldn't find it as I was trying to ask the question or get on the AM topic, but A&M, A&M's three SEC wins. They ran for 209 yards against Auburn, 204 against Arkansas, the 105 in yesterday's win over South Carolina. And the losses to Alabama and Tennessee, 67 and 54 yards, respectively. So pretty stark contracts on the success rate. And they didn't run it great yesterday against South Carolina. Um, they just kind of did enough through the air, particularly in the second half, to give some separation – but it, it's kind of make or break for them as far as their ability running the football. And it would add up, right, with kind of having an average quarterback. But it's there for the taking. And we talked about a little bit last night of, like, Alabama and Georgia, obviously the mantle of SEC's, you know, top two programs in the last couple years, whichever we want. Maybe we'll call it the Lane Kiffin era. You know, Ole Miss now, I think Kiffin put 19-2 and in their last 21 home games. They've been outside of the Arkansas – Uh, Mississippi State stretched to end the season last year. I guess if you're going to throw the Texas Bowl in, they're fine. But they've been very consistent. They've been very good home teams. And if they're better than the opponent, they win that game at a very high rate. And that's been something that has not happened here a lot. But as we just, they continue to pile up wins and they're seven and one for the second consecutive season. It's remarkable to see how consistent of a program Ole Miss has become in those toss-up coin flip games and the ones they're supposed to win. They rarely ever throw a stinker.
0: No, never. I mean, it's really the biggest difference. What Lane has brought to this team is their ability to just take care of business when they need to. Um, The COVID year, like I just can, that doesn't really even count. Uh, But that's what they done. I mean, they probably, sans COVID year, have lost one game where you're like, what the hell was that? And that was Mississippi State last year. That is probably the only game Since in his real years of coaching here, where you're like, that was actually a pretty unacceptable loss. Um, And now would A&M this weekend be an unacceptable loss? No, but they're a better football team than them. I, I know that, you know, talent wise, and this is just a fact, so you don't get mad at me, like just position by position, you are at a disadvantage to this team, but you are still a better football team than them. And when that's been the case, he's been able to come out on top, especially at home. And I would predict that would be the case this weekend as well.
1: We'll finish up with Weldon in just one second. But before we do, I want to take one last quick break to remind you. This podcast is now brought to you by MC Speech Therapy. Has your child been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder or another developmental disorder? MC Speech Therapy offers private speech therapy from the comfort of your own home. Other centers may leave you as the parent sitting in the waiting room. MC speech therapy enables parents to make every moment with their child therapeutic using a relationship based framework. MC speech therapy can help your child engage, relate, and communicate. Mary-Claire Boudreaux's doctorate level expertise and passion in helping children with communication difficulties offers articulation and language therapy, parent training, is, is licensed to do virtual therapy across the state of Mississippi with MC speech therapy. You and your family will gain a better understanding of your child while cultivating stronger relationships for service today. Call 903-824-8575 or email her at, at Therapy.net. That is M-A-R-Y-C-L-A-I-R-E at mcspeechtherapy.net. All right, back to Weldon. There just haven't been very many losses in general to pick from. I mean, it's, they lost two games in 2021 and it was Alabama, and oh my god what am I blanking on who's this
0: the weird yeah the
1: the, Auburn that's right the road game at Auburn like no that's and then like it's right it's Mississippi State last year and then like losing at Arkansas I guess I know they weren't very good last year they lost to Liberty but they were still you know Rocket Sanders you get Jefferson back healthy, capable maybe the manner they lost was kind of like this is not great not acceptable but like the game itself that was not like okay I'm pretty shocked they lost this Egg Bowl certainly was last year but outside of that you're right I mean they just they continue to find ways to win and they win the close ones that, and I don't know if some of that is just luck and course corrections coming, but you talk about all the one score games they won in 2021. Uh, Most of these games, when they get closer in the fourth quarter, Ole Miss seems to, to find a way, whether it's LSU this year um, kind of putting Auburn away in the second half of that one, they just, it's very, very impressive. The model of consistency they've been, and I know we kind of poke fun at some of the pro mindset, but uh you know, it kind of speaks to it in that sense. Like you mentioned, they do take care of business against teams on equal footing. And uh, that game next Saturday against A&M is kind of that one to a T. So I'm, I'm curious to see how it'll turn out. We'll certainly be having a much different conversation about, about the Georgia game, uh, depending on the result of that one. Um, and if so I- what, <laughs> what, yeah. As so I'd say in travel plans, maybe as we you and I talked about before, we might have different uh, podcast schedules on Sunday too, after the Georgia game, depending on next week. So it's going to be a fascinating one. 11 a.m., we'll see what happens. Let's take a look around the SEC before we hit soccer corner and get out of here. And we kind of covered the A&M-South Carolina game. Uh, early on, I was like, man, are they actually going to do this? Then A&M's talent kind of imposed their will and just ran South Carolina into the ground. South Carolina, just not a very good football team. They've been battered with injuries. It's going to be fascinating to me to see how Shane Beamer is viewed after this season. Is it? Do you chalk it up to just – decimated by injuries they still weren't a good defense and they're healthy I'm very curious to see how this is viewed in terms of his
0: job security I mean they're not firing him this year yeah definitely not firing after this year for sure that would be insane for them to do um but they haven't they haven't been well coached this year and injuries obviously are a part of that you're probably playing new guys but they're not very disciplined they make stupid stupid penalties they make silly mistakes um, and we've said this every week; they're wasting a pretty damn good season out of Rattler. So there's going to be a lot of questions there, and those questions are very, very warranted. Uh, they're not making a change or anything like that, uh, but it's really been worse, honestly, in my opinion, than it may even look. I know what they—I mean—they're two and six right now, so it's pretty damn bad. Uh, but it feels and looks so much worse, uh, considering some of the games they've lost. They probably could have won, and the way that they played on. Uh, at Missouri and at AM. and I mean, back-to-back road games is really difficult, but it's like neither one was, like, overly competitive against two teams that are – I mean, they're good football teams. they sure as hell aren't great football teams. And South Carolina has managed to look, make a lot of pretty average and bad teams and good teams look elite, and that's never a good thing.
1: And they've got a chance to right the ship a bit. They get Jacksonville State next weekend before a home game against uh, – home games against South <inaudible> or excuse me, Vanderbilt and Kentucky, and then kind of the Clemson game wrap up the year. Are from an automatic win. What'd you
0: say? That is far, far, far from an automatic win.
1: Yeah, Rich has got it going down there. Um, They're, what, they're five, six and seven and one, six or seven and one somewhere in there. I saw that the other night. I was actually watching them play on a Tuesday or Wednesday night. So you think that game could get a little weird
0: absolutely if they don't get up for that game which they probably won't because they're two and six or whatever and it's gonna be at home i don't even know what time that game's at i think it's one of the mini 11 a.m games you don't get up for that game that team is incredibly physical rich rod's team they will punch you in the mouth if you do not punch back they will absolutely lose Uh, i saw the line came out as 14 oh
1: that is kind of right there in that zone of like we don't really know much about this matchup, but this team is certainly not incapable of going in there and winning that game. So not at all, I mean, if you want to frame it this way, they're now entering the month of November and they have beaten Furman and Mississippi state. That's a uh, well,
0: good. Okay, and it's either one. Like, <laughs> yeah, with a blink of an eye. It's it's incredible, actually. Honestly, it's so much worse than I thought. <laughs> it's really bad. They will, they will not fire him, but it's actually a lot worse now that you're saying it out loud. It'll change how next year's viewed. And I think that's kind of how
1: what I was trying to get at earlier of like you know, how, how this season has gone and the disaster that it's been will certainly have an effect on how long of a leash he has next year uh georgia florida i watched a decent bit of this early on then i kind of went in the grove for a little bit watched a little bit more before the old miss game started as after we got in the stadium um georgia still going to be okay without brock bowers i guess they uh they seem to look fine carson beck seemingly is coming into his own seems like the last three four weeks they've kind of unleashed him they've kind of seemingly let him do more trusted him more and he's made good on that as well but uh they looked a lot sharper offensively um, after the first two series of the game, then I thought they might, you know, in the first edition of not having Brock Bowers.
0: Uh, Florida completely lost, like, this game in the first – in the second quarter. They uh had a great script, came out, like, six plays, scored, and we're like, all right, you know, here, here we go. We got a game here. Florida off a bye. Like, you know, no Bowers. We'll see what happens. And they started getting cute with Georgia. And they got cute multiple times. And every single time they tried Georgia – just completely punched them in the face and was like, actually, that's not how you're gonna beat us. And I think it's actually good in case we beat AM to see that for Lane to be like, there's just no, there's no nonsense with this team. Uh you you will not beat this team kind of out thinking them or going wide. It's just not going to happen. And Georgia defensively is just so fast. Um it, it is just incredible how quickly they close space against guys. I mean, Florida has real athletes um, at the skill positions, more than they've had in recent years, and it was just a no contest there. Um, And then offensively, you're right. Beck's been really good. He's been really – he's really accurate. The guy is open, and he's got time. He will will hit him in stride with absolutely no issue. Uh, Doesn't have a cannon by any means, but will kind of stretch the field uh, horizontally really well. And then when they have McConkie back – and he's healthy, he's absolutely dynamic. Uh, he's a, like a really, really good player. Uh, the Delp kid that uh, I remember as a recruit that's kind of been Bowers' backup, he's a hell of a player too. He's no scrub, uh, and he showed that again on Saturday. Uh, they just completely manhandled the Florida team that had a ton of time to prepare for this game and are clearly still playing catch-up roster-wise with Georgia.
1: Speaking of another, or really two quarterbacks that played well in this game that I was not expecting, Joe Milton's playing better football the last couple of weeks. I thought he was pretty good, at, particularly the first two quarters against Alabama, played okay on uh, in this in the 33-27 win over Kentucky. My main theory was in a disappointing year for Kentucky, like you finally saw Devin Leary like almost have like an out-of-body experience and play very well in this game, and they just wasted it because they got behind early and could never really
0: get settled back in. They had an opportunity to win this and just couldn't do it they definitely did uh it's like this is kind of a weird deal they have these in the SEC and we talk about them all the time we're like Kentucky just doesn't beat Tennessee. I think Tennessee's won like 17 out of the last 20 or something like that uh with a lot of those Kentucky teams probably being better than Tennessee uh it's it's a it's a weird dynamic there and uh Milton played great uh he looked really good he was more a willing runner. The receivers were playing much better. They they kind of were able to get off the mat after that weird second half against Alabama. And then this is kind of turning into a, a pretty oddly disappointing season for Kentucky with kind of the thoughts and hype that they had going into the season with the transfer quarterback. And it's just, you know, getting the OC back, getting Ray Davis in, having Barry and Brown and Key and these guys with a defense that's actually just not that good. Uh, they, they've come up to – a situation where they've been playing worse against better rosters than they have in the past. Um, They've been able to kind of nullify that situation by being well coached. And this year, they're just not as well coached. They're not as good on either side of the ball. And it's actually pretty shocking. We've gotten pretty used to a damn good Kentucky team. And this one is just not that.
1: No, they are not. And it was, this was one of the better games of the day, SEC wise. It was a fairly light SEC slate in terms of any sort of compelling football um uh, auburn mississippi state i turned on the beginning of this and there wasn't much watch worth watching after the second half i didn't know auburn was capable of scoring 24 points and a half uh much less 14 and a quarter and this game was 14 to 3 before anyone like ever settled in and you're like okay this game's like really started um they seemingly went kind of more with peyton thorn after doing a lot more ashford last week he played pretty well <laughs> mississippi state defense allowed peyton thorn to go for 230 and three touchdowns. He hit him with a deep ball early after kind of lulling him to sleep. Uh, These are two bad football teams, but credit to Hugh Freeze because as bad as the state defense is, I do think they kind of had a better plan and a better idea offensively after what seemed like rock bottom against Ole Miss the week before.
0: Yeah, I mean, they came out just just airing it out. Uh, They went with Thorne. They stayed with Thorne. They gave Hunter the ball a lot more early and often in this game. And Mississippi State is just really, really bad. Uh, This was my personal play of the day, Auburn minus six and a half. Uh, I just couldn't believe that was the number off state back-to-back weekends off of a bullshit win against Arkansas that made them think that they were better than they were. Uh, Auburn is not very good. Mississippi State is like way, way worse. Mike Wright's not an SEC quarterback. Uh, their back end of their defense, which has been something that literally every year they've had players, they do not have those players this year, um, and they're just incapable of stopping anybody that's capable of throwing the ball. I mean, Spencer Rattler absolutely torched them. Uh, even you know Jalen Milrow torched them, and Peyton Thorne for at least three quarters until they completely went just inside zone for the rest of the third and fourth quarter, torched them. Uh, That was absolutely tough to watch Uh, small positives for Mississippi state is their two linebackers are fantastic. Absolutely. The bookie Watson guy and jet Johnson from Tupelo, they are fantastic football players and they play their ass off every single game where it looks like the rest of that team could give less of a shit if they play well at all, which is the most concerning thing you can see from a first year head coach. And he said it too. He's like, we didn't really have a great effort. Uh, and that is kind of unexplainable to me for a team in their position.
1: Yeah, because that was really the swing game for them to get to a bowl. Uh, you know, now it seems like they're staring five and seven in the face. You, know, you somehow win with a game with a backup quarterback at Arkansas. And like this was supposed to be a you know massive game in terms of momentum for Arnett and you know getting to a bowl game and kind of riding the ship after a tough start to the year. And they just came out flat, which is very strange. He seems very much. I always thought he was a good defensive coordinator. He, I thought he had a great plan in the 22 egg bowl. Well, it-
0: He's completely in over his head. Way they in were, over his head. Renowned. And I guess
1: that just goes to show you how different being a head coach is and can be in terms of responsibilities and all the different things you have to manage and approach. Because for a very competent defensive coordinator, uh, he is way, way gone over his head. I know we talked about it last week, but it's just more and more on display every single week.
0: And they're doing something right now recruiting-wise. Um Big That juco. is incredibly concerning. Uh, they are going heavy juco. Uh, they've taken, I think, like three or four in the last two weeks. And that is absolutely it's borderline unacceptable at this stage in college the way college football is right now for these guys. Going heavy JUCO um, is just not good. That's not that's not a good sign. For guys that are coming in with two years, they're not transfer portal guys. It's it's just really concerning that they're not able to fill out a roster, whether it's high school wise or their confidence to be able to go into the portal and make changes. It's not, it's not good. That's not what you want to see if you're a Mississippi state fan.
1: And for a program like that, it flies in the face of everything they kind of builds off of. I know things are changing with NIL and they've struggled to adjust with that with some, but they've always been kind of the get the in-state kids that you get, develop them into good players. And that's kind of how you build continuity And this newfound um, kind of lean in toward the JUCO ranks with the guys two years left, like you just mentioned, that that kind of flies in the face of like what the program has been for a long time, for better or for worse. I don't even mean that as an insult. It just makes it all the more concerning.
0: Well, I yes and no to that. The way, I mean, Ole Miss and Mississippi State, especially while I worked there and previously, they, they've always hit the Mississippi JUCOs. I mean, that, that's something that's a built-in advantage that they have, which is something that's rare for Ole Miss and Mississippi State to have a, a built-in recruiting advantage. The difference is is their pivot, is yes. that they were not recruiting these JUCO kids uh, months ago. That that was not the case. That you know they had all that momentum in the summer. And Ole Miss, look, they have a JUCO wide receiver committed. They're going for an offensive tackle. They're going for Deion Smith. Those are like instant impact guys. Missouri State is going to get a JUCO middle linebacker that's been to five colleges. They're going to get like a depth two depth pieces on the defense. It's it's just not what you want to see. And it's been a clear pivot. It's very different from what in the past when they would go get guys, because those were just really good players to fill out their roster. You have ways to do that now that are very different. You don't need to go get journeyman Juco guys to come in uh, as your, you know, fifth, sixth, seventh guy to end your cl- or 25th, 26th, 27th guy to end your class. Uh, that's a completely different deal than the way that Old Miss and Missouri State have handled Juco's in the past.
1: Why do you think he's doing that? Do you think it's indicative of him looking at the landscape of guys they might get in state and thinking we're out on a lot of guys or we don't stand very well? What, what do you think the reasoning for this is, if you had to guess?
0: My guess would be that JUCO guys don't require a whole lot of NIL, uh, especially the ones that they've gotten. Uh, they don't have to go spend money in the portal where they probably don't think they're going to be as competitive. Uh, they have been missing out on their targets. I mean, at this point in time, you know who's on your hot list. You know who you're recruiting, and you know, you know, damn well where you stand with those guys. What's clearly happened is they've gone through their, you know, their evaluations of the you know, high school side. They're like, you know, we have some guys, but they just aren't, they can't play for us. We're not going to go out in the portal and start shopping because we can't do it. We're going to have to go to our bread and butter uh, and take some Mississippi JUCO guys that we evaluate enough. To fill our roster, and that is just red flag on top of red flag, in my opinion.
1: Probably gets another year, um, if I had to guess. But it, it, I don't know. It, it,
0: what,
1: I feel bad. It, they, they need to do it, and like he'll probably get another year. But what if the egg bowl just goes lopsided? If, you know, as well as anyone, the egg bowl result sometimes makes people
0: do crazy ass things. Absolutely true. It, it's it is unfair to him this situation. Yes. Um, but it all gets forgotten very quickly on why he's in this situation, you know, where they were after Leach passed away. And, you know, this guy was a guy they brought in that because he won. He was very good defensive coordinator, undeniably. LSU wanted him, Michigan, I think. I mean, a lot of people wanted this guy as a defensive coordinator, and they were confident that he was a guy that wanted to be there. And it was continuity with the roster. They were worried about guys portaling all over the place, And they hired an offensive coordinator with a completely different mindset on what they needed to do. It was foolish. It happens all the time. You see people make the wrong hire and it's probably making it look a lot worse than it is. Will Rogers gets hurt. It's a catastrophe on multiple different levels that aren't all his fault necessarily. But at the end of the day, like I said, people forget those circumstances incredibly quickly uh, in a situation where you've got Oklahoma and Texas coming in and you are falling far, far, far behind your in-state rival that they, you know, that is the most important thing to them. And so that's a really big problem.
1: It is now time for the fastest-growing segment on American soil. It is Soccer Corner. I got my coffee this morning and flipped on what ultimately ended up being something they called the London Derby. Was it – or not – no, is it, is it just the Derby? It's Manchester United versus Manchester City. I already screwed up that. They're not London teams. They're Manchester, England. What is this Derby called?
0: Manchester Derby. Or Manchester
1: Narva. Derby. I don't know why I threw London in there. The announcers kept talking about last year's game being the Demolition Derby or something. Was that just Man City beating the hell out of them? Do you,
0: do you, are you aware of this nickname? Uh, I'm not aware of that nickname. I know we won one lost, got our ass kicked in the other one last year. So I, it must've been the other one they were talking about. Um, but I, if you watched that full game, you saw what it looks like when a team that's really good and knows exactly what they're supposed to do when they do that at an exceptional level. And when you see a team that is in complete shambles, uh, what that looks like, it was a complete manhandling from the jump. So what does that do in, in English football? Like
1: when you have a rival, I know Manchester City was the club for a while. And then for the last like 12 years, or uh, United was the club for a while. And then City's kind of made this revival. And they're kind of the face of the league and really like European soccer, it seems like in a lot of ways. does, does it, Do you get any SEC football? Actually, we just talked about the Egg Bowl making people do stupid things. Is there any sort of reaction to this to where like our arch nemesis on the other side is just absolutely light years ahead of us?
0: This is nothing new. This is nothing new since probably 2012, when City came into Old Trafford and beat them 6-1 with Mario Balotelli. Uh, that was like the day everything flipped completely. It was like this is the team now. They have the more, they have more money. They have the manager. They have the resources. They're doing everything right. United's doing everything wrong. And though United has gotten results here and there, it, this has been a pretty uncompetitive rivalry, which is. It's really kind of like, I don't know what the comparison would be college football wise, but European football is so similar to college football in the way that things like this, they would make you do insane and crazy things. Um, This was kind of like if Georgia was Georgia, and then Man City was Georgia Tech, and then all of a sudden Georgia Tech uh, had a Saudi backer come in or a Qatari backer or whatever the hell that guy is. And then all of a sudden Georgia Tech won three straight national championships and Georgia was like a middling program trying to find their way. That's basically what has happened in okay. uh, and with this rivalry. I think that's probably as good of a comparison as you could find. Um, and It's just been this way for a long, long time, and this is why people were so disappointed United fans were – you know, it was a moral quandary, wanting to have a Qatari owner come in and buy the club to be competitive, uh, and when it did not happen and it, it it will not happen, the owner of Ineos is coming in to buy a certain share of United instead of a full sale. People are like, well, that's just it. I mean, we just can't compete with these guys anymore. And whether that's right or wrong, it's not fully true. They've just been shitty, shitty, shitty at managing this roster it's not going to make them do anything insane. It's just more beat beatdowns were beatdowns. It's just demoralizing at this point.
1: My Brentford bees just destroyed Chelsea, sending Brian Haydad's favorite club back into the doldrums of just absolute shambles as well. It seems like they're still a disaster that's not getting
0: fixed anytime soon. I think I saw a stat that Brentford has worn more games at Chelsea since April than Chelsea has. Whoa. Okay. That seems tough to do. Not very good. Uh, and It's funny because Chelsea played Arsenal really well last week. They ended up drawing two, two after going two up. Uh, and then they kind of came back down to earth uh, again this week and earth for them is not where they should be. They should be at least fighting for top five, top six. Uh, and along with United, I just don't see that being a realistic scenario for either of those clubs this year.
1: Over the top, got Tottenham and Arsenal, got Tottenham leading the league with uh, 26 points, Arsenal and Man City two points behind them. Arsenal's always been, de- or, excuse me, Tottenham has always been described to me as similar to like Ole Miss football. It's like, can be exciting, dramatic, never really won anything of consequence recently or really at all in a, quite a while um, and sometimes has the ability to pee down its own leg in the big one and, you know, what whatever you want to call it, the Treadwell game or the uh, fourth and 25, stuff like that seems to happen to Tottenham. Uh, is this just setting up for a massive disappointment? How good is this team actually?
0: They're really good. They know, I mean, they, they had their manager come in from Celtic. I can't even pronounce his last name. I think he's Australian or New Zealand. Okay. I can't. This flag shows up. I can't remember what um, nationality is from. And they have had a bit of a Ewing theory effect with Harry Kane leaving to go to Bayern Munich. They've actually been playing better uh, without him, which, you know, is that real or not? Is it just a flash in the pan for them? I don't know. But they have an incredibly athletic midfield. They have one of the best players in the world, uh, Son from South Korea, who's electric playing up top they have bought some more players than they have in the past uh and they just know exactly what they want to do they they're well def- they play really well defensively they uh, um press really hard they finish when they get the opportunities and they've just gotten a ton of results they haven't lost a game this season they're they're 8 and 2 with just two draws um are they going to win this whole thing i don't know if they have the squad depth too, but their one advantage is they are not playing European football anywhere. Um, so that this is the only competition along with like the FA Cup and stuff like that that they have. So they'll have that advantage of Arsenal and City and Liverpool to not be playing anywhere else that can kind of hold that depth together. And injury wise, they've got some guys coming back. They're really good. They play in a f- very fun brand. They uh, they made some great signings. And James Madison, who has been featuring more in the England squad, he's been awesome for them uh i don't know if this will hold up but they've firmly gotten themselves a chance to play champions league next year finishing top four i don't know if they'll win the whole thing though this
1: has been the fastest growing segment on american soil soccer corner he is weldon rodenberg i appreciate the time as always my dude and we'll uh we'll talk to you next week after a big one for old miss
0: yep sounds good see you then That'll do it for
1: our show today. Thanks for listening. As always, really appreciate your time. Big week ahead, Texas A&M week. Got some great guests lined up. I think you're going to enjoy the slate of content. Thanks for listening to this podcast as always. We'll talk to you real soon.